This talk is called Cheryl's Thoughts on View by Cheryl Sleen. <laughs> As you know, I was I was talking to Dave today about how uh, this is the case no matter what talk you give. It's like every talk is the same talk. You know, just a little different. And I think it's kind of neat how our talks are overlapping. But these are some more reflections on wise view. And as Dave touched on last night, when considering what is wise or unwise view, it's very closely related to the, um, the teaching, the Buddha's very important teaching of clinging, clinging identification, which is, those of you who know me, my favorite topic. So I'll be reflecting on right view, uh, wrong view or unwise view, and clinging, and letting go of clinging tonight. Because, of course, any view, any thought, any emotion, any sense experience is not a problem unless we believe in it. Any view, whether right or wrong, skillful or unskillful, is not a problem unless we believe in it. If we see it and recognize it, uh, we can choose to not believe in it. If we see that it is incorrect or incomplete or harmful, unskillful in some way, unwholesome, not reflecting of reality, we can see that. Once we recognize that view is there and operating, we can let go of clinging to it, let go of believing in it, and then it's not a problem. It can just fade away. It might come up again, but then we can see it again. And, you know, as we've touched on several times, our, our path of practice is designed to help us see that, to help us see in that way. The mind training is really aimed at that, at revealing the unwise views so that we can abandon them. And then also uh, the various path factors in the trainings, the sila, samadhi, panya trainings, will drop us into, will discover, will sort of um, organically discover wiser views and the, and the wholesome experiences that we have when we're when we're in those views, when we're seeing things, as I mentioned this morning, more in alignment with reality. We feel the relief of that. We feel the freedom from suffering of that, of that view. And the, the thoughts, the speech, the activities, the behaviors that arise from that view, that is more in alignment with reality. And so our path of practice is, is designed to reveal both of those things, to reveal unwise view and the suffering that it creates, and wise view and the freedom that it offers, that it can drop us into. And so we experience all of that with awareness, and then, you know, we develop wisdom. We develop the ability to discern and to uh, turn our minds to the wholesome. But as Dave gave us so many colorful examples last night and today, this afternoon, <clears throat> we aren't always aware 
of the views that are operating in our minds. And so we are un unknowingly clinging to them, unknowingly believing in them, sort of unaware not only that they're there, but that we're going along with them, that we're buying into them. So it's like, you know, double ignorant swammy, or whatever. <laughs> like, <laughs> mega suffering. <laughs> I mean, it's, that's ignorance. We are ignorant of <laughs> these background views sometimes when they're in the background. So part of our practice is like dredging them up <laughs> from the background. This is what our mindfulness practice is designed to do, to eventually reveal those operating. So when we reveal them, we can see and discern whether they're skillful or unskillful. I'm hoping by wearing this, you're, ta you're not taking me very seriously. Because <laughs> I, I feel it on my head, and I feel like really unserious, and that's a good thing. <laughs> So, there are examples, you know, there's the autumn, we, we are uh, all, you know, human beings, we are all um, afflicted by this, these sort of automatic cognitive functions, like jumping to conclusions, <laughs> jumping to conclusions, which just constitutes a form of, of unwise view or unskillful view, because it's incomplete, and uh, so, for you know, this is just how we operate evolutionarily. <laughs> you know, like the negativity bias sort of built in. We've inherited it. We've also inherited our mind. You know, it's like we sample through our senses bits of the data of the environment, and then our mind fills in the blanks. Our minds decide what what those that that information means, interprets it. Continues on, tells us where to go next with that information, and it's really fascinating to study this. I'm sure some of you out there are really familiar with this, uh, the the mysteries of perception and how visually even we're only seeing parts of the environment are only coming in, only parts of that are coming through our retinas, and then our minds are filling in the blanks with. Mm -hmm stuff sampled earlier or even historically stored data. So there's that interesting uh, report of like the Native Americans who f first saw the sailing vessels coming up the, the Pacific Northwest and they, mm -hmm. they couldn't actually see them there apparently. Uh, this is stupid. I shouldn't be telling this because I don't really know. Someone told me this story, and I read it in a book about perception and cognitive cognition, but now I can't remember the details. But it's something like <laughs> they were not able to, because they had never seen anything like that before in their experience, they actually didn't really even see it, see them until they were right on them, until they were right on the shore. I guess there was some report from the Native Americans that was written down and, you know put into a history. So that's fascinating. It's like if we don't have the, a, a way to perceive it, to recognize what it is, we might not even see it, which is interesting when it comes to Dharma. Like we might not even see that we have a negativity bias until somebody says, hey, you might have a negativity bias. <laughs> and it didn't even occur to us to look for other stuff besides our problems or our, you know? So, so until we, we just might not even perceive something is there 
until we get some information that helps us perceive it. So the jumping to conclusions things, have you ever jumped to a conclusion <laughs> that led you down the garden path of suffering like wrongly, you know, like jump to a wrong conclusion that you later found out was wrong, but you went along with it for a while and made all kinds of decisions and whatnot. That person doesn't like me, so I'm going to avoid them for the next three years. <laughs> and then you, yeah, it's like, okay, we jump to conclusions about people. I, I look out at my... Um, friends who are so attentively listening when I'm teaching and I see all kinds of facial <laughs> expressions and body language and I can see my mind going, oh, they're getting it. Oh, they're bored. They're sleeping. They hate me. <laughs> they, I'm not sure, you know, neutral. Oh, look, they're smiling. Okay, I'm going to look at her for a while. <laughs> I'm just going to look over here. But of course, my attention is always drawn to the skeptical ones, the ones who are like, I don't think so. And I just keep going back. Am I getting me? Am I getting me? You know, so it's like there's all this behavior that proliferates off the, the mind making assumptions about the tiniest bit of data you know, that I'm getting just with a glance. Like, oh, I formulate a whole storyline and relationship from a brief people I don't even know, really. And um, so it's like, this is not a problem unless we go with it. It's because it's been really interesting to me as I've gone on through this practice, how I've been um, able to, we, we are able to start to observe our minds at work. This is where mindfulness leads us. We start with the body-based objects, and then we're able to start to get glimpses of our mind operating, and then we start to be able to really watch our minds working. Mm-hmm. We start to be able to mindfully think, you know, and, and or at the very least, at least catch, catch glimpses, sort of, so I can look out there and just sort of watch my mind come to all those conclusions mm-hmm. and assumptions, right, mm-hmm. and just find it amusing, and let it go, and not cling not get sucked in, not believe. No suffering. No suffering. Sometimes in order to encourage that, we might have to tell ourselves, like, I don't know this person. I don't know what they're thinking. We have enough experiences. Like, what, what, how did you find out that you were wrong when you jumped to a conclusion that you acted on and then you found out later you were totally wrong. What happened to make you fi- help you find out you were wrong? Usually you got more information. You just got more complete information. I avoided you. You know, I thought you didn't like me because of the thing you said that time, and so I just kind of, you know, I just stopped calling you. And then the person says, what? Well, that day I was thinking, I just lost my job and I was really concerned about that or something completely unrelated to me. But when we, put, we make it all about me, mm-hmm. it's like we, that takes us down the garden path. Mm-hmm. And so we get the correct information and that gives us the more complete view and it dispels the, uh, the wrong, you know, the unskillful behavior that follows on the wrong view.
So you, those of you who know me, this is sort of my mantra that comes from my teacher side, Utejaniya, and he speaks directly to this, to clinging. Um, when he says, you know, no matter what is happening in your, as you're practicing, uh, as you're living your life, you have basically two choices of how to relate what attitude to bring, how to relate to that experience. You can either believe in it or you can practice with it. That's it, just two. The believing in it is all the ways we cling. We get sucked in, we lose awareness, we get swept along by the emotion or the experience, whether positive or negative, you know. We um, just unconsciously buy into these assumptions and views. Uh, or we can practice with. And now practice with is big. It's, it unpacks as a lot. A lot of sort of different things and, and ways, what things that we can do. But it all begins with this shift of awareness, right? That we're practicing here, moment by moment. I can just believe in or be lost in my experience or mood or feeling or idea or movie. <laughs> the movies, some people were talking about the movies of the mind, taking them away. You know, I like that metaphor. Or we can practice with it. What is happening right now? What am I seeing? What's, where, what's happening in my body right now? Shifting to observing, you know, awareness, observing mode, non-entangled. And when we shift to that mode, we're already breaking the clinging. We're already cultivating the wise view of non-entangled perspective. Where, you know, it might be worth believing in, or it might, I, rather, rather than using that, it might be worth acting on. <coughs> it might be useful, whatever our minds are kicking up. Uh, it might be helpful, but I'm going to look and see. I'm going to get a more complete view first. And when we practice with it, when we observe it, it'll become clear if it's correct, incorrect, incomplete, complete, wholesome or unwholesome, leading to harm or not leading to harm. And it might be really obvious at just when we shift to being aware. And it might take time. We might need to look at something for a long time before its wholesomeness or unwholesomeness becomes clear. So that's a that's a develop it could be a development process. <clears throat> and so then once we discern the skillful, the unskillful, we can then practice abandoning the unskillful and cultivating the skillful. And I'll give a few examples that hopefully illuminate that spiritual development that's centered around seeing and discerning wise and unwise view. So we want to become consciously aware of these views and assumptions that are incomplete, inaccurate, other ways wrong or not right view. How? How do we become more aware of them? Well, you can start anywhere, really. You can start with being mindful of any of the six sense doors, and it will eventually lead you to view, to some views and assumptions and beliefs and opinions and ideas. 
some framing, some way that you're looking at things, you know? It will, that will eventually become, be revealed. The different parts of the construction will reveal itself. So, for instance, you could always start with your dukkha <laughs> and work backwards from there because if there's dukkha, the Buddha says, there's wrong view there. There's some incorrect, incomplete, unwholesome view. So, you know, training oneself to recognize dukkha and to say, well, the Buddha says this is clinging. Upadhanakanda. He, that was in the, the first noble truth. He goes through all the... Dave last night talked about the various forms of uh, suffering. You know, there's the existential level of suffering, of, of being born and old age and sickness and death. There's the psychological forms of suffering, which are, which are being separated from what we love and having to deal with what we don't want, <laughs> being in union with what we don't want. And then there's, in brief, he says, in brief, suffering is upadhanakanda, the aggregate subject to clinging, whatever that is. Last <laughs> night, Dave talked about the aggregates, and we'll, I'm going to unpack it a little more in a couple of nights, too. But for now, it's just like the body uh, clinging to the aggregates. The aggregates themselves, forms, feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, um, uh, uh, perception, um, what Dave called inclination, and I, others call formations, the pro- proliferations of mind and so on, and then consciousness. None of those in and of themselves are a problem. Clinging to them is a problem. Clinging to them is the suffering. So, upadana, clinging. Wait, why did I say that? I mean, sorry. So um, that means that, you know, if we start with dukkha, we're going to find the clinging. We're going to find what we're clinging, and we're going to find the wrong view that's at the heart of that, which is part of wrong view is just um, the fact that we are believing in this, that we are willing to believe in what our thoughts are kicking up. We're willing to just go along with our emotions, you know, and just be swept up in them and lose awareness. There's, there's unwise view in all of that. And that's clinging. So we can start with our dukkha and sort of let it deconstruct itself until the unwise assumptions come, come up. You can learn and train to watch your mind at work and then it becomes really obvious like what I just described, to be able to watch your mind jumping to conclusions with limited information. And to just come up with really stupid, like stupid, inaccurate views. Um, you know, I have plenty of examples. The one I often cite is when I started with the dukkha of driving in traffic <laughs> and the stress of driving in traffic in my body, and I just started paying attention to the dukkha of that and the stress and the contraction and the frustration and the anger. Just observing all that, being with it. Bloop! <laughs> I don't know how to describe it, but awareness will, if you're willing to see, if you're curious, will just penetrate right down to the little engine of view that's driving all that. And the view at the heart of that was, they're all traffic. I'm not traffic. (laughs) I'm trying to get somewhere. That thing, that traffic, is in my way. It's a barrier. Wrong view. 
I mean, could that be any more incorrect, right? As soon as you see it, and it's like, what? Oh, it's always self-centered, right? It's always, the wrong view is very often like self, uh, related to self in some way. What I need, what I want, what should happen in my view, what should be happening. So that stuff will come up, and sometimes like that, it couldn't be more clear how wrong it is, how incorrect it is, because of course I am traffic too. And not only that, but I know that everybody else in every other car is thinking the same thing, that they're not traffic. <laughs> and it just suddenly there's humor and compassion and all of that, right? So you can see right through, starting with your dukkha. Watching your mind at work, mindfulness of mind. Do, we can do practices that intentionally open our minds to the more complete view. Like once we are either awake in ourselves or are pointed out the limitedness of our view, we can try cultivating a more complete view like we did this morning. Opening to the range of experience. Yes, there is discomfort, there's pain, there's problems. And what else is here? There's a lot of other stuff here. Once we break the clinging, that that the problems and the, the um, difficulties taking up our whole minds. So we can turn attention deliberately to broaden our view. Um, another example of that, which I suggest you might try during the eating meditation, is to take a moment before you eat the food or maybe as you're putting it on your plate, but just to reflect on and consider where did this food come from? Where did this food come from? And just let your perspective open and your mind range to all the different people, beings, critters, bacteria, activities that went into bringing, growing this food, bringing it to the store, our cooks going and buying it and preparing it for us. When you start to think about that and reflect on that and deliberately open your mind and heart to that, it's like big. You're opening up to wise view, the wise view of interdependence, how our lives are so, so um, contingent, dependent on all of these other conditions and people and activities. It's very humbling. And so I I feel when I do that actively before eating food, I I eat my food, it's a different experience. Mm -hmm. It tends to break the whole myopia of preference and taste. I like this, I don't like this, you know, and bring in more appreciation and gratitude. For me, anyway, try it and see what happens for you. Maybe it'll just be overwhelming. (laughs) 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 I find it fascinating and interesting because it's reality, right? I want to know reality. I want to know the truth, not just my mind's version of the truth or what it finds convenient to to think about or view. So you can start anywhere with any sense, with any sense object. And you will eventually see the mind at work. And from there, you will, you will, you know, your views will become apparent as well. 
So for instance, you can practice with hearing sound and then start to become aware of the actual nature of the hearing process. Well, there's the, just the sounds themselves. And then there's the mind processing or relating to the sounds. And you can start to discern those two separate but interrelating parts of hearing, the process of hearing. So each of these sense, sense experiences can get, will deconstruct itself into its component parts as we watch mindfully. Sound and mind, locating sound in space, identifying what the sound is, uh, liking it or disliking it, having associations with the sound. There might be some sparking, proliferating, you know, storytelling. Mm -hmm. The sound of um, the birds and now this childhood experience, you know, listening to my grandma telling a story underneath the oak tree. And it could be beautiful, it could be... No- anyway, do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. There's the sense and the mind relating to the sense. And that, that is the same thing with when we're able to start to observe our minds. There's the mind and the mind relating to itself. The mind being the sixth sense. So there's a story that I tell. In fact, some of you were actually even here during this, when this happened at a New Year's retreat that Dave and I taught a couple of years ago. And at this retreat, uh, um, we're sitting in a meditation hall where um, we were sitting in a hall where we were right next to the kitchen. I think you might have been there too. There were several of us were here right next to the kitchen. And um, so while we were sitting during certain sitting periods, we would hear quite a bit of uh, noise coming from the kitchen, clattering and moving of things and whatnot. It got really noisy sometimes. It's not your typical you know, meditation hall experience here in the West anyway, where we're really trying to create you know, find a nice quiet place for you to get quiet inside. That, there was a lot of clattering and activity. So we got like dozens of notes Dozens of notes. Can you do something about the sound? You know, what's up with the sound? It's really disturbing and distracting, and it shouldn't be like that. What's going on? Fix it. <laughs> Fix that sound. <laughs> um, and so Dave and I decided to teach with that. It's like, oh, okay. So there's sound, and then there's the mind relating to sound. There's the sound disliking. There's disliking the sound. And then there is what Dave talked about this morning with his shades on. There's the way that our perception of the sound is, is perceived through the filter of our, um, you know, usually self-involved preferences mm-hmm. or needs, cravings, aversions. Um, they're the folks who, you know, wrote those notes... We're working from an assumption that a meditation hall should be quiet. That's the background mm-hmm. assumption. I prefer it if the meditation hall were quiet. <laughs> you guys all look so <coughs> dour. I think this story is kind of funny, you know, so I tell you. <laughs> meditation hall should be quiet, right? Can we relate to that? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, it's not, you know, we know why. We know why we prefer it that way. It's because, you know, if it's not, we have to spend all this time bringing our attention back from the, the sounds that are taking our attention away. But so we, we um, invited folks to practice with. Instead of just clinging to that view, which they weren't even aware that they had, to instead practice with circumstances as they were, conditions as they were arising. This is what's presenting itself. What am I aware of? Clattering. Mm-hmm. I'm aware of sound clattering. It's okay. You know, you can just be aware of the sound. And then you have the uh, opportunity to be aware of just the sound mm-hmm. if you pay close attention to it. It's like it's not clattering all the time. It's just like there's this sound and there's that sound. You see the impermanence of the sound, how some of the sounds are loud and some quiet. You start to see the texture of it. It becomes interesting in a way when it's out, when you've taken off Dave's sunglasses, which are, I don't want that sound. And you've, you're with bare attention, sound as sound. There's freedom in that. Mm-hmm. That's right view. And it's free because it's, you know, it's free of suffering because it's, it's more accurate than the view that is um, distorted by our preference, by our preference. So that um, was helpful. It seemed to be helpful for people. And then we got a bunch of notes and reports in the groups. It's like, oh, wow. They, they were uh, able to shift perspectives intentionally from the entangled one that was seeing the experience through the wrong view, the incorrect view, and then on the unfiltered, just sound. And they felt the relief of that shift. They felt the relief of that shift. So there's like a whole bunch of learning there about, um, about clinging, letting go, unwise view, and wise view that's encapsulated in this sutta that I always quote. Forgive me, I'm going to quote it again. The Bahia Sutta, where the Buddha says, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the sense activity, what is in reference to the seen, heard, smelled, tasted, sensed, or cognized, this applies to the mind as well. The activity is a mind. There will be only the seen, heard, smelled, tasted, cognized, etc. That is how you should train yourself. When for you there will be only the herd in reference to the herd, there is no you in connection with that. When there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor there, nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. So he's pointing directly to the self um, centered view or the self self uh, referential view as the suffering piece. Releasing ourselves from that view is the end of suffering. Very interesting. So that means that when we can see these self referential views operating in various ways, we can t- take a look and see if that's true for us, you know.
there was this other great sutta that I came across that's related to this that I wanted to just note. This is from the Udana. For one who clings, motion exists. But for one who clings not, there is no motion. When no, where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where no coming nor going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. Where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world nor a world beyond, nor a state between. This verily is the end of suffering. So it's a a different way of saying the same thing. You know, that Bahia Sutta talks about how the self is what's coming and going, is what's positioning us either here or there or in between. And he's pointing to that as being our problem. It's what, like, moves us out of stillness, our native stillness, and starts all this proliferation of mind, which is the not stillness, Mm -hmm. which is the coming and going, the becoming. (laughs) what What do I need? What do I want? What do I have to get to be happy? He's saying, actually, the happiness is right here in the stillness that's free from all that coming and going, that your imaginary self is imagining. It's once we see them as a view, see self as a view, as, as, a, as a conceptual overlay, then we have the road to freedom. And I, I uh, will be offering more on this topic in a couple of couple of nights. So <clears throat> circling back around to that clatter in the kitchen story. When we are able to shift to a right view perspective that is unencumbered, unentangled with, and not clinging to, in this case, preference or an idea of how it should be, when we're free of that and we're resting in right view, like Dave was talking about, resting in awareness, we're right there with our hearts. This is something that I've discovered for myself. Our hearts, all the heart qualities, all the beautiful qualities of mind, the, the, the compassion, the love, the metta, the kindness, the equanimity, the appreciation, right there. Because it is there. It's in there. The heart mm-hmm. is the heart of wisdom, right? And so we have ready access to all of those qualities, And they'll sometimes sort of spontaneously come up when we're in that right view, which is also sometimes this stillness of presence. So, for instance, people were reporting when they were able to shift out of, that take off the filter glasses of how I think it should be and get interested in just the sound as sound. They get interested in it. There's continuity. They're in right view. And suddenly it occurs to them that the folks making those sounds are caring for us. They're actually making our food so that we can practice in here, so that we can sort of realize these truths and have these awakenings and free ourselves. Mm. And then there's just deep gratitude that naturally comes from that wisdom saying, hey, you know what else is happening here in this sound? People are 
caring for you. Wow. Mm. That's right there. There's no way anyone would have come to that view without extricating themselves from the I need it to be this way. There it's only anger and irritation mm. that, you know, the defilements arising from that view. So this shifting, you know, it's like it opens us up to this heart, the heart of caring, compassion, kindness that we've all been seeking. The person I always wanted to be, I discovered at the end of my first meditation retreat. It's like, whoa, I, I did not realize that I could authentically feel love to other people that weren't, you know, close to me. That I could authentically care about them. I don't, I, I'm, I'm, I'm relating to you and I'm feeling love and I don't even have to pretend. I don't have to put on the face of, I care about you and your view. You know, like, because I, I normally didn't. I normally was filtering all through, yeah, 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 and I think. You know what I mean? Uh, Self-centered, uh, waiting for them to finish, right. or even interrupting them, so I yes. jump in. Sorry, that's just the way it was back in the day. You know? Defilements, very painful. It's suffering. That's why I came to the practice. I didn't want to be that person. So it's amazing how just in this, this bare attention, sound as sound, we can find this huge heart that leaves out nothing. It's right there because it's in the wisdom of that view. <coughs> Let's see. I've got 15 minutes, so what should, what should I do? I have, two, I have two possible roads to hoe, roads to hoe here. <clears throat> I think I'll go to this new piece that most of you have probably never heard yet. It's challenging, though. So, what if we could find a way to relate to other people outside of, like what I just described, you know, if we could set aside entanglement in our preferences and in our assumptions about who you are and who you are and what you are to me and what I need from you. How I need you to be so that I can be comfortable. I don't know if any of you have ever felt that way, but I sure have. <laughs> it's like, what if we can, what if we could step out of entanglement in that view and meet another person like we meet those sounds in the kitchen? Like, okay, well, let me see what, let me just see what's here. Let me just receive you fully. You know, I mean, you know, with boundaries. Okay, with safe boundaries, of course. But, I mean, what am I missing? In my view, and this is especially an interesting practice when it comes to people we know really well. We are really hardened in our view about them. And like, what if I'm seeing, what if I'm, what if I were meeting this person for the first time, that beginner's mind, that Zen beginner's mind that is operating from a place of not knowing? We're basically going to disentangle ourselves from what we think we know about this person. Okay, so the difficulties of the, the hardened views is sort of encapsulated in this amazing um, uh, article that 
Dave posted on Facebook sometime, <laughs> like a couple months ago, and it was like the most useful thing I've seen on Facebook in ever. <laughs> <laughs> like forever. I've been teaching with it. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. I know you like it. There's a, you know, it's good to check Facebook every now and then, <laughs> annoying as it is. And so it's a, it's a piece, I'm just going to read bits of it, called Today's Biggest Threat, The Polarized Mind, and it's by some psychologists, academic uh, researchers in psychology, who are also experienced um, uh, mindfulness practitioners. And this, this came out in the Scientific American in, in April of this year. And they say, as the bitter strife between left and right, citizen and non-citizen, white and non-white attest, the greatest threat to humanity today goes beyond political and religious divides, economics, and psychiatric diagnoses. It goes beyond cultural conflicts and even the degradation of the environment, and yet it includes all of these. As psychologists concerned with the social and psychological bases of human destructiveness, and as dedicated observers of history, we have arrived at the conclusion that so much of what we call human depravity seems to be based on a principle termed the polarized mind. The polarized mind is the fixation on a single point of view to the utter exclusion of competing points of view, and it has caused more human torment and misery than virtually any other factor. Clinging to wrong view is what he's, they're pointing to here. We are in complete agreement that the polarized mind is one of the major threats to humanity, not just isolated parts of the world. Our empirically-based studies, for example, have indicated that mindlessness, a condition of narrowed perception and reactivity, uh, is, chief and cross, is a chief and cross-cultural feature of the polarized mind, while mindfulness, an attitude of heightened awareness or presence, is a cardinal feature of the depolarized mind, associated with capacity for discovery, creativity, and well-being. It's also associated with a radical transformation of consciousness, but this consciousness cannot flourish until it counterbalances and to the extent possible supersedes the polarized mind. Shifting from letting go of clinging to wrong view, cultivating, letting, you know, abandoning the unskillful and cultivating the skillful. It's Buddhism 101 right here. What is the basis for the polarized mind? While there are many contributing factors from family and cultural conditioning to scarcity of resources to availability of weapons to neuropsychological dispositions, the common denominators among all these factors appear to be fear and anxiety. As an array of studies has shown, people tend to become full polarized, fixated, and extreme in the face of helplessness anxiety, and fear. This condition not only tends to make people feel small and insignificant, but ultimately, if the helplessness, anxiety, and fear are strong enough, as if their very lives are at stake. The result of this outcome is that people will do all they can to avoid such death anxiety, including becoming violent and oppressive themselves as a defense. So this is really, really interesting because they are tra- tracing back. They're doing what 
mindfulness will do, which is reveal the constructedness and the causes and conditions of depravity, human depravity, what they put in quotes, evil. The, you know, the people going out with semi-automatic weapons and shooting innocents. You know, it's like that comes from the wrong view. The wrong view, the wrong view and, and, and being locked to that view. Mm-hmm. It's a view of blame. You're the problem. Mm-hmm. You're the problem. Person, non-citizen, immigrant, mm-hmm. or whatever. You're the problem other than me. Mm-hmm. And that comes from, it's the anger. The anger, which is a regulation strategy on top of the fear. The fear, anxiety, and helplessness that comes from various conditions, some of which may be societal and certainly need to be addressed. Wars, poverty, you know, economic injustice, all forms of injustice, right? So there, there are some external conditions for that, but it's like it, it's really important to see where it comes from. It's like the, we don't want to be vulnerable with our fear and our feeling of helplessness. And so all of this other stuff is then built on top and then locked in, we get locked into a view which feels, I don't know why, I don't know how this could be, but somehow it feels better than actually feeling the pain of our death anxiety. I don't, I don't know how hating could feel better, but for some it does. It's like, it's like the Buddha said, they don't know another way. There's no other option for them. They haven't been exposed to the to teachings or perspectives that uh, allow them to to re- you know see what's actually going on. Mm-hmm. And this brings to me a great a lot of compassion. Mm-hmm. They, they just don't know another way. They're doing the best they can, mm-hmm. which is a horrible, horrible thought. So, that's not the end of the story. (laughs) It's not the end of the story. What this article, okay, I'm not going to leave you there. Um, So what these these folks then, they go on to talk about is is they they encourage, they've started a program, which is uh, bringing, in which they bring people of these different polarized view to get views together, left and right, mm. politically, for instance, mm. into a room. They teach them mindfulness, mm. and they teach them mindful interaction. And they ask them to share what's on their mind. And the instruction, they teach them the skills to, of, of active listening, of being able to receive the other, mm. who we have these fixed views, to set aside the fixed views and just receive them fully and hear them fully. And guess what? When people are given permission to share, they will get down to that vulnerable place. Both sides are sharing the same fear, anxiety, helplessness Mm -hmm. in the face of conditions. And they see their common humanity. And they see where they can connect. And and it's like there's also in that place the heart being present, wisdom is present. So it's like... Compassion will act to relieve suffering when compassion, the heart is there, 
there might be all kinds of ideas these groups can come up with for how to resolve or take steps to start to solve some of the problems that are the external problems that are causing those the, those uh, fears and anxieties. You know, like we can solve economic injustice, we can solve poverty, we can solve hunger. We can't solve death, but we can relate to it differently. And the Dharma path teaches us that mm-hmm. in big time. I, I'm out of time. I've only got three minutes, so. I'll, I won't go down that path. <laughs> but I just want to say that there is an amazing sutta I came across recently mm. called the Abhaya Sutta. Abhaya meaning fearless. Mm. And the Buddha just talks about this, how to be fearless in the face of death and uncertainty and impermanence. It's through right view. It's uh, through finding the refuge of awareness that is understanding that it's in the design of things impermanence is. Poverty isn't. Injustice isn't. But death is. Impermanence is. And so instead of, you know, we, we are anxious about it because um, we don't want it. We prefer not. Also, it's the unknown. <laughs> but, you know, we can become friendly with it through practice but I won't go there. For one who clings, motion exists. But for one who clings not, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. This, verily, is the end of suffering. No coming, nor going, nor arising, nor passing away. Stillness. So there is this perspective that can drop us into the unconditioned, or as Dave says, the doors to the deathless are open. The deathless, this stillness, this wise view that is not perturbed by impermanence. Yeah? It's not going out to try to control it or fix it. Or so it's interesting as we as we look at our minds, we start to see what are the what are the issues that need to be addressed and that we can address, and which are the ones that we need to surrender to, <laughs> which are the facts that we just need to surrender to, and this is wise view also, mm-hmm. clear seeing, and wise response. So thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.